listening to a shortcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science shaping the post-COVID world series, a digested version of our live online public event series. This event was recorded on 19th October 2020. A full version is available to download via the LSE website or from your usual podcast provider. Welcome to the LSE for this online event about data-driven responses to COVID-19 opportunities and limitations. My name is Susan Scott. I'm a professor in information systems in the Department of Management at the LSE. The panel is going to continue the conversation that we began at our last event in May, reviewing the opportunities and limitations from a societal, legal and technical perspective and highlighting the risks of exclusion and discrimination that can arise. Now I'm delighted to hand over to Dr. Edgar Whitley, Associate Professor in the Information Systems and Innovation Group in the Department of Management. Edgar, over to you. Beginning of October, the government reported a blip, as it were, in the figures where over 12,000 new infections had to be reported on one day. This was simply the result of a large number of test results not being fed properly into the dashboard and presumably equally into the processes for contact tracing, etc., etc. How could this happen? What were the issues? It seems from the press reports that this was a function of using Microsoft Excel, but in particular, a version of Excel that was updated in about 2005, 2006, 2007. So over 10 year old technology. The idea, as has been described, is that the individual labs would share their data in essentially very basic raw data formats because different labs may have different systems. Those would then be imported into Excel spreadsheets. And then those spreadsheets would then be sent to Public Health England for aggregation and further processing. The problem that arose was that the choice of format, the XLS, the early version of the Excel format, was limited to 65,000 rows in the spreadsheet, which if each case had a number of rows, apparently would be about 1,400 cases. So if a lab was reporting fewer than 1,400 cases, all of them would be imported in the spreadsheet. So they were being sent from the labs perfectly fine, but being imported and that would work fine. If you had more than that many cases, essentially the software would just delete, ignore all of those rows that wouldn't fit at the bottom of the spreadsheet. And of course, if they're not imported into the spreadsheet, then they don't go into that further process of dashboards, which is useful for planning whether we need to to introduce stricter measures, but importantly, apparently also not being fed to the contact tracers that say, these people have had positive test results, please now self-isolate, don't spread the disease further, etc, etc. And so we can have a number of responses, a number of reactions from a straightforward health perspective, health of our community, health of our society, I think there was an awful lot of anger. How on earth could this happen that we have built processes that allow people to continue to spread the disease because they've been in contact with people who we know have reported positive? This also addresses this question of confidence in government. And there are real concerns about the 
long-term trust in government already hit when the guidance was interpreted, should we say, loosely by government advisors and members of parliament. But if the government who we particularly rely on in times of crisis to be able to do things, then these questions of long-term trust become significant. And again, there's a, a kind of anger associated with that. But there's also a way of thinking about this in terms of what actually went on. And drawing on my colleague Leslie Wilcox's work on outsourcing and IT outsourcing, this raises important questions about this relationship between the tiny state and the privatized companies that are working with them. So an initial question was, who just designed this process? Who thought about the requirements? Why did that nobody think that there might be a limit to how many cases any one lab might be returning in any one day? Even if that had been built in as a requirement, that was a very, very strong assumption to make, particularly as everyone was expecting a rise in cases as we come into autumn and come into winter. So was there a proper testing requirement stage going on or did people just not even think about that? Then there's the question of the constraints around the use of technology. Why were they using an old format for the Excel spreadsheets? Was this because Public Health England was running old PCs with old versions of Windows that wouldn't necessarily be able to run the latest versions of Excel spreadsheets? And if that was the case, then surely that could have been fixed fairly early on because somebody who's been paid lots of money to support the state should have been aware of that particular constraint. Or did nobody think of it? And then there's also broader questions around data governance more generally as to how a process could be set up, whether it was within government or in this case between government and private sector support for allowing this kind of activity to be undertaken. And we know that the government has got a data ethics framework. The updated version was issued in September 2020. It's a lot more specific. It's a very nice framework for thinking about data ethics kinds of questions, primarily from a kind of modeling and AI perspective, but many of the considerations actually apply as much for importing test results into a big dashboard and then taking actions arising from it. And now over to Dr. Alison Powell from the LSE Department of Media and Communications. Alison, over to you. I wanted to talk a little bit about how I think about the relationship between the huge ethical questions that are raised by the COVID-19 responses and the specific aspects that are sort of data-driven. So what I wanna just lay out very briefly in the next couple of minutes is this idea that there's a kind of underlying structure that is completely shot through with ethical questions, which are about what is the good in society and how are we meant to act well and on top of that underlying structure that is sort of shot through with really difficult ethical questions about who do we value, what do we value, how systemically are we able to understand what's going on in our life, we have a data system that is both material and symbolic. 
So it is both a data system that produces material that is being stored and used to predict and maintain and structure our everyday lives. And it's also something that is communicating to us all the time. So these graphs that we are invited to interpret are potentially taken by people as sort of one source among many, which produces what people think of as a crisis of misinformation. And that's something that we need to sort of think about these things separately. So if we think about the, the idea of this mode of power that's being reinforced through these, this material and symbolic uh, dynamic, we can see that in the UK anyway, that mode of power is a kind of tending towards a super privatized tiny state with a set of kind of citizens who are primarily consumers of either data or information about data, or they're producers of data that allow the sort of super tiny privatized state and its actors like Palantir, who's running lots of dashboards that are filtering information to more effectively make decisions. And this is a really difficult thing to identify and critique because it's so fundamental. It's that underlying sort of social order that produces all of these really tricky ethical questions. And when we look up from that to the top layer, we start seeing not only, oh, we have a super tiny privatized state that's outsourced quite a lot of the data management to Palantir, but also, oh, we have a media and communication system that's using data about the COVID-19 pandemic in ways that are really easy to put into conversation with the idea that everything is misinformation. For example, this morning, I went to look at a map of London and look at London's infection rates. And you have looked at two or three different maps, and I realized that some of the maps had completely different color codings for the infection rates than they did two weeks ago, suggesting perhaps that things really hadn't changed that much since August, when in fact the level of COVID-19 infections across the UK has gone up by a factor of, in some places, up to 1,000, in some places a factor of 500, in some places a factor of two. But this was impossible to determine from the visualization. This introduces this question about the way that data plays as fact, which is something that um, sociologist Norta Morris has talked about when she alerted us to the risks of computational systems in terms of how they embed the possibility of deception and manipulation into the foundation of the social world. And she wrote about this in terms of Volkswagen's cars being programmed to identify when they were likely to be in testing situations and then to perform differently. But what I'm curious about is whether we now have data systems that are so unstable in terms of their symbolic and material situation that they are amenable to being perceived as sources of misinformation, which makes it very difficult to challenge that underlying problem with the structure of society and to actually get at those deep ethical questions. And they are really about what is good. So is it to respect rights, to be fair, to be transparent, to be good value for money, to build capacity by keeping people healthier? Is the good to think about the systemic long-term safety and health of the entire environment? These are questions we can't even get to because we're trapped in a moment where everything that is factual and data-driven has been placed into question both materially and symbolically. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Alison. And Dr. Sita Gangadharan, Associate Professor in the LSE Department of Media Communications, over to you. I've been thinking about over the last few weeks, if there will ever be a way of thinking about surveillance in affirmative or positive terms. When we're talking about the data-driven responses to COVID-19, we need to center our conversation and understanding about the ways in which surveillance is being normalized at alarming rates in this current pandemic. I'd like to also draw attention to the fact that, as Allison alluded to, we're not really only dealing with the health pandemic, we're also dealing with the pandemic of racism. And so I want to just really briefly think through three types of surveillance that I think are in operation in this current crisis, and then just speak briefly about how we potentially get around this increase in surveillance. Just as context, much of what I'm talking about really does pertain to both the United States and to a lesser extent, the United Kingdom and Europe. Um, But there are three different kinds of surveillance that I think are really present in the current uh, context. The first pertains to the idea of marginalizing surveillance and the fact that new technologies being deployed during this twin pandemic increase what Torin Monaghan calls marginalizing surveillance or what Simone Brown refers to as racialized surveillance. Recently, uh, data for Black Lives, for example, produced a series of maps that are looking at racial disparities in the United States with respect to both deaths due to COVID-19, as well as number of cases. And in spite of this awareness and the many months that have now transpired, we're still seeing figures of great disparity. So I'll just point to the state of Vermont, for example, which recently was written up in Politico as an exemplar of a state in the United States that responded early and that instituted measures to really clamp down on uh, social interactions. And in fact, the total number of cases of Black people in the state of Vermont is nearly 11%, while the total population of Black people in the state is just over 1%, 1.3%. So even in the best rated state, we can see that racial disparities are very pronounced. This increases as you get to states like Texas or Wisconsin, where the rates are even at a larger gap of, for example, 16%, when in fact the population is close to 6%. And that's just cases the death rates, I think, are even more alarming. Let me move on to the second form of surveillance, and that has to do with the fact that new technologies exacerbate forms of refractive surveillance. And this is a term that Karen Levy, sociologists Karen Levy and Solon Barocas used to explain several years back how data-driven technologies drive a type of consumerism that depends on hyper-surveillance of consumer behavior which in turn is coupled with hyper-surveillance of workers in the workplace who must perform quickly and constantly meet the data-driven bespoke needs of consumers. So they were talking about hyper-surveillance of and just-in-time pricing in a retail context. But we can see now in 2020, as we've kind of emerged or divided into a delivered class, 
and a delivery class, this kind of refractive surveillance really kind of taking shape. So what I mean by this in this situation is as middle class and wealthier classes have developed an increased appetite for ordering everything online and most likely not going back to shopping on the high street or locally, the demand for low-wage warehouse workers has increased. So Amazon has said that they'll hire something like 175,000 workers to meet this demand. And what has that meant for low-wage workers? An increased pressure through algorithmic management techniques to monitor their performance, to pack boxes, to get to your house in 24 hours or less. This kind of refractive surveillance has been incredibly damaging, not only from the perspective of health and safety, but I would also argue from the perspective of free speech as workers try and speak out against things like being punished for being time off task. They are fired or let go without any chance of being hired again. Let me just really quickly get to the last form of surveillance, and that pertains to extractive surveillance. But what I want to draw out is this concept of extractive surveillance, which Miriam Arach, Helen Pritchard, Seda Gerasis, Femke Snelting have written about recently. They were talking about digital contact tracing apps and the ways in which the relationship between big tech and governments will be on this sort of path-dependent trajectory that makes it very difficult for governments to use the same kinds of democratic safeguards to keep watch over this new kind of infrastructure that's making its way into public infrastructure. In addition, they say that there is material danger, which is as we become more dependent on these methods of tracking us during this pandemic, there's a material consequence, right? We use more phones, which means that we mine more rare earth minerals, which means that creates a different kind of division between typically North and Southern countries. And we have to think about the impacts of the problem of waste, toxicity, and pollution that will accrue during our increased dependence on things like digital contact tracing apps or the devices that power them. Thank you so much, Sita. Orla will now contribute a legal perspective to this important conversation. So Dr. Orla Linsky, Associate Professor of the Department of Law at LSE, over to you. What I want to focus on for my few minutes is looking at the contact tracing app discussion. And I've been looking at this primarily from um, a European perspective. The first is a query about whether or not the legal system, in fact, actually constrained the design of the contact tracing application as it was ultimately kind of launched in the UK. The second is about the potential, but also the limits from a legal perspective of looking at these issues or framing these issues predominantly through the lens of data protection, because that's kind of been our go-to legal instrument to discuss a lot of these issues and things like the surveillance that CETA has been talking about aren't necessarily very well captured through data protection legislation. If I start with that first query about whether or not data protection law in particular, data protection and privacy concerns, led us to develop an app. Design of the system was ultimately um, decentralized, meaning that data was held on individuals' devices rather than in a centralized server, whether or not that consideration was driven by data protection law. Because the critique has been that data protection and privacy concerns 
were pushed to the fore at the expense of the gathering of useful data for public health purposes. So that we put fundamental rights in a privileged position relative to public health and the utility of this data for broader societal purposes. Just in response to that, what I would say is that although data protection and privacy advocates expressed a preference for a more decentralised system because it didn't have that potential to recreate a social graph and function creep, this wasn't something I think was necessarily required by data protection law. Rather, what data protection law required was for the developers of an app, if they wished to use a centralised system, to clearly specify the purposes of that centralization were, then why that centralization didn't go beyond what was necessary to achieve those purposes. Looking in the rearview mirror, one of the first things you see was that it wasn't the data protection drove the design of the app. It was that there was a wanton kind of disregard for these basic data protection principles in designing the system and a failure to really articulate the how and the why of the data collection to individuals and to to the broader public in a way that was compatible with the legal framework. Second thing I want to emphasize is just the limited competence in many ways of the data protection regulators here. As we've heard, part of the issue with an app (laughs) might be, or as we've considered in other contexts, that individuals might be forced, for example, compelled to produce the app in certain contexts. So we might, for instance, think of employees going into work, being compelled to produce the app. Or as we know at the moment with the NHS X app, there is a QR code function, which certain venues are required to use. They are required by law to have a QR code available for individuals to scan using the NHS X app. However, individuals themselves are not required to have the app and to actually scan the QR code. Whereas, in fact, the way in which this is being interpreted by a lot of venues, including, I would emphasize, local authority venues. So we could think here of village halls, community centers, etc., is that unless you scan the QR code, you will not be able to enter into the venue. Well, this is a clear kind of exclusionary potential insofar as if you don't have a device that is compatible with the NHS X app, you may not be able to enter because you won't be able to scan that code. And so one question I think raised was whether or not data protection law could capture that type of exclusionary effect of the use of a data driven or a data informed technology like a contact tracing app. And here what the data protection regulators suggested was that we have principles in data protection law, like a principle of legality or fair processing, which might allow a data protection authority to look to other areas of law, like anti-discrimination law, for instance, to make sure those other areas of law were not violated as a result of the use of a particular technology. So this is in principle possible However, in Europe, where there is ostensibly the most application or enforcement of the data protection rules, we've never, in fact, seen an authority apply their competence in this way. And so this leads to a query about whether or not there are impacts of certain data driven or data informed technologies that we think could be captured by data protection law, but in fact are not. And I think there are lots of other examples like that of potential gaps in the data protection framework, where we assume because we have a legal framework 
that covers personal data processing and, and puts in place principles and safeguards, that this will cover all ills. Thank you very much. Well, I'd, I'd like to thank all of our panellists for their comments today. It's uh, been a great pleasure to have the opportunity to engage with you. I hope that uh, you've enjoyed uh, listening. Mm -hmm.